Let's go to the Lord in prayer once again. Father, help us now. Help us listen closely to your word. You have revealed to us who you are. You've revealed to us what we need to believe and how we need to live in light of who you are and what you've done. God, please let us not waste this time. Father, may we listen closely. There's so many things that can distract us right now. There's so many things that can draw our attention away from what truly matters. So Father, please be here to block it out and help us to focus on Christ today. We need him. We need you, God. We need your grace, and we need your grace to help us to both believe and live in light of what you've revealed to us in your scriptures. Help me now to rightly divide your word of truth. And Father, speak to us so that we will worship you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, James Montgomery Boyce uses the following illustration. If a young man wants to ask his father for something, he will pattern his request on the nature and the temperament of his father. If the father is ill-tempered and stingy, the young man will ask for little. He will take care to present his need in the most winsome and unobjectionable manner. If the father is good-natured and generous, the child will present his need openly and with great confidence. How true is this? Haven't we all been on the asking end of a relationship with someone who has the power and the resources to give us something we need or want? What kind of person they are determines how often we will ask something of them. It determines how much we will ask of them and in what manner we will ask of them. Like Boyce said, with people who are irritable, your request will be particularly strategic because you want your request to be granted. So you're going to think about how to say it exactly. What is the right time? Uh, you're going to feel things out. You're going to be like those batters who are waiting for the perfect pitch, right? The ones of whom we say, good eye, good eye. If your boss is a temperamental kind of guy, you know, if, he's, if he's irritable, if he's a harsh kind of person, then you're going to keep that request that you have of him in your back pocket. You're going to wait. You're going to wait for the perfect opportunity. When he comes into the conference room yelling at Johnson over in the corner because he didn't double space his quarterly reports, probably not a good time. I'll, I'll wait. And when you finally take the opportunity to ask, because he's a hard man, your request will be short. It'll be to the point and asked in such a way that will make it obvious what he stands to benefit from granting you the request. You probably won't ask for much because you don't want to push it, right? 
And you'll probably sprinkle the whole discussion with, a lot, with lots of thank yous and yes sirs. On the other hand, if the person you're asking is someone who is others-minded, compassionate, and eager to bless, you will feel the freedom to make requests of them more, more frequently, and for things that will require more sacrifice on their part. You'll ask confidently, without intimidation, because their character encourages it. See, if we're going to ask a person for something, we need to know much more about him or her than whether they have the power and the resources to grant our request. Yes, we do need to know. Can this person grant my request? Do they have the capacity to give me what I'm asking for? We need to know that. But much more than that, we need to know of their character. Are they gracious enough to grant the request? Are they gracious enough? In our text for this morning, Jesus wants us to know something about God's character. He wants us to know something about God's character that will greatly affect the way we ask him for what we want and need. But we will also find that Jesus' intent in our passage for this morning in telling us about God's character is not simply so that we will ask him for more. Certainly it is that. But it is also so that we will love people more in light of this aspect of his character. So turn with me to Matthew 7, 7 through 12. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12 for this morning's text. Follow along with me as I read the words of Christ. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If then you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, each time I get a chance to preach, I'm going to the next section in the Sermon on the Mount. It's uh, Matthew 5 through 7. Matthew 5 through 7. I'm coming to the end, actually, of the Sermon on the Mount here, probably in the next couple of times I preach. But in this text, uh, we notice something about God's character. And before we we delve into that, I I want to just give you some of the context of the Sermon on the Mount. In journeying through the Sermon on the Mount, it's important for us to remember that Jesus has been preaching this sermon to people who belong to the kingdom of God. Those people who, through faith and submission to King Jesus, are his subjects. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, The words of this sermon are addressed to people of whom the Beatitudes are true. So the people that he's speaking to in this sermon, they're the people who are poor in spirit, as we saw in the Beatitudes at the beginning of the sermon, right? They're poor in spirit, having nothing before God but sin. They're those who mourn over their sin. Those who are gentle, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In short, these words are addressed 
the people who have been saved by the preacher of this sermon, Jesus. Left to himself, there is no person who can believe these truths, who can obey these commands and heed these warnings without Christ. It is through him only. Jesus is telling us what loyal subjects of the kingdom of heaven believe and what they do. In today's text, we see Jesus calling God's loyal subjects to obedience in three ways. He's calling uh, God's loyal subjects to obedience in three ways. Number one, he wants us to ask God persistently. We are to ask God persistently. Number two, to ask God expectantly. And the final one, having received God's fatherly love, we are to love others sacrificially, okay? So we should ask God persistently, ask God expectantly, and having received God's fatherly love, we are to love others sacrificially. So our first point, God's subjects ask God persistently. In verse 7, if you look back at the text with me, we have the command from Christ to ask, seek, and knock. Ask, seek, and knock. All terms for making requests of God in prayer. All terms used for prayer. Now, the important thing that we need to understand about each of these words is that they are present imperatives. They're present imperatives, which means that we are to continue doing them indefinitely. We are to obey these commandments continuously. There's, there's no end that Christ gives us. He says, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. It's not as if Jesus is telling us to ask once, never bring it up again, and wait for God to do his part. Not what he's calling us to. In regard to prayer, we should not be people who think, God's got me on record now, right? I made the request, God, he wrote it down, he's got it on record, so I'm good to go. And you move on with your life. No. God desires us to be persistent and tenacious in our prayers to him. We see this in other parts of the scriptures too. Uh, turn with me to Luke eleven five through 8. Let's see an example here. Luke 11, 5 through 8. Jesus speaking, said, he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So, in other words, the guy keeps knocking. And because of his persistence, his friend gets up and gives him what he needs. Notice with me, though, the verse that comes right after verse 8. 
So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Same verse we're dealing with in Matthew 7. Dealing with prayer, persistence in prayer. Church, we're, we're to persist in prayer because prayer is an act of dependence on God. That's a good definition for prayer. Active dependence on God. That's why he wants us to continue doing it. From, from person to person, if, if you are a person asking another person for something, making a request of another person, oftentimes the reasons we continue asking each other for things are different than the reason why we should continue asking God for things. Okay? What do I mean by that? Well, we, we continue asking people for things because they forget we asked them, right? Um, I wrote it down. I just forgot to check the list. You know, I, I feel like that all the time. People ask me to do things and I write it down, forgot to check the list, sorry. So you have to ask me again. Ask me multiple times. So we, we have to ask each other. Uh, we have to persist and request because we forget or because the person is unwilling, right? The person doesn't want to grant your request, as it, as it was in the case of the friend in Luke 11. And we think if we keep asking, then the person will break eventually, right? If, if I just annoy them enough, they'll cave, right? It gives glory to God, though, for us to ask. He desires us to ask He's telling us not only to ask, but to keep asking. He wants it. It gives him glory when we turn to him as the one who we believe is powerful enough, wise enough, and loving enough to give us what we ask. Now, if we're also if we're going back to person-to-person requests, we shy away from persistence in our request of others because we think we're going to annoy people, Right? People are busy. We're all busy people who are, who are struggling to cross things off our to-do lists. So many times, what do we do when we ask somebody um, again? We kind of wince a little bit like, want one of those, you know? That's not the case with God, though. We don't have to worry that we're imposing on God's time that we're going to annoy him or irritate him because we're asking persistently. Isn't that great, church? You don't have to worry about uh, imposing on God's time. God operates outside of time, and he has no limitations with what he can do for you. You're not going to annoy him? You're not going to irritate him? You're You're not going to impose upon him? He wants to answer you. He wants to answer you. Let us not forget, church, that we are spiritual beggars. Spiritual beggars. We are continually in desperate need of God's grace. Continually. When we were in Mexico City back in 2005, we were on a mission trip down there. And we were at this market shopping the very last day before we got on the plane the next morning. And uh, we were shopping around. It was kind of a, a flea market type setting. And there was a, a woman that was uh, asking for money. She was begging for money on the side of the road next to the shops. She was probably almost 90 years old. It was obvious that uh, she couldn't walk. She was in a, uh, a wheelchair of some type, and she was blind. 
Don't you think she understood that she didn't have what she needed? And even more that she couldn't provide for her needs herself. Right? The understanding of her desperate situation left her with no other options. She had to beg to survive. What would it take for you to beg? What would it take for you to go out on a street corner and beg for money? You think, I would never do that. But what if you were plumb out of options? Bankrupt, bank account drained, no job, physically unable to work, don't qualify for assistance, estranged by your family and friends, on the streets and without anything to eat for days. What then? Would you do it? Would you then look to the generosity of strangers to help you? Most of us, we're probably not going to have to experience that in life. But if you are a follower of Jesus, then you had to come to this point spiritually before God graciously forgave your sins and made you his child in Jesus Christ. You had to come to that point spiritually where you had nothing left, nothing, no options but Christ. As Jesus has already said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In order to receive the mercy that comes only through Jesus, you had to approach God with empty hands and with empty pockets outturned. I got nothing. I've got nothing, Lord. I've got nothing to offer myself to you with. I've only got sin. Pleading with him to pay your spiritual debt. That's the way you had to come to Christ to receive his mercy. And he gave it. He gave it all through Christ. So here's the rub. As Christians, we act as if we're not still in desperate need of his grace. We forget that. We, we think, yes, Jesus died for me. And so and we act as if we are no longer needy. Yes, it is true. Because Jesus died in our place and brought us to faith in him, we stand before God justified, forgiven, redeemed, wrapped in the righteousness of Christ and loved by him perfectly. That is true. And that's not going to change if you're in Christ. Not gonna change. But in God's plan, he has made it so that he pumps grace and blessings through our active dependence on him as we pray. Church, hear me say this. God is still our only hope. Just because you're in Christ, just because you've been forgiven and you're now justified, doesn't mean you don't still need him desperately. He is still your only hope. God is still the only provider. Just because we are believers now does not mean that suddenly there are other options out there for where we can get help. No, it's still him. He's still the provider. He provided the grace we needed to be forgiven of all of our sin. And he is continually providing us with the grace we need to live for him. We're told this, aren't we? Are we not? James 1, 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from where? Above. It's from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Every gift, every perfect thing given. It's from him. 
still the only provider. We need him just as much now as when we first came to him. So what, what, what point am I trying to make when we're talking about persistence in prayer? We need to be persistent and tenacious in our prayers. And the reason why I think we don't do that enough is because we don't see ourselves as helpless enough. We don't see ourselves as still needy. The apostle Paul prayed three times for God to remove his thorn in the flesh. Three times. And of course, yes, the Lord said, my grace is sufficient. But the point is that Paul saw his need, and he continued to pray. He kept praying. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, says this. We tell ourselves, strong Christians pray a lot. If I were a stronger Christian, I'd pray more. Strong Christians do pray more. But they pray more because they realize how weak they are. They don't try to hide it from themselves. Weakness is the channel that allows them to access grace. Weakness is the channel that allows them to access grace. We're saved, but we're still needy. And we're always needy. On the weeks when, on the weeks when I have to preach, I feel more needy. I've got to um, exposit a text. I've got to take the truth out. I've got to preach it in such a way that it, that it represents the truth of God's word accurately. I've got to do it in a way that, that um, is preached to, to your hearts. I feel like this, it's this heavy burden. I, I love to do it, but it is, it's weighty, and I, and I feel as if it's, it's something that I need to take seriously and that I, I'm not qualified to do many weeks. And then I've got my family and I've got other responsibilities at work. I can't neglect those. And there are things that come up that you're not expecting during a week like this. So on the weeks when I have to preach, I feel this greater sense of need, this greater sense of helplessness before God. But I'm always needy. You and I, we have circumstances in life that squeeze us harder than others, you know? And, and in those moments, we, we feel the need of God's grace more in those moments than in other moments when we feel like, yeah, I got this. But we're always needy. Don't let the fact that you don't feel needy turn you from the truth that you are needy. All the time, needy. And God's always there for you to de- depend on, to lean on. So you're always needy, but you always have him to go to and to ask persistently, help me, I need you. And he answers. If we're needy all the time, there's no wonder why Paul tells us pray without ceasing. Right? First Thessalonians 5. Now, one last thing in regard to persistence and prayer. In James 4.2, James writes, You do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. Often, prayer is not the first thing we think to do when a need arises, is it? We turn to our strengths, our bank accounts, uh, and other people. And then, when they fail us, someone says, have you prayed about it? And we feel like idiots because it seems so simple, right? Yeah, prayer. Wow, why didn't I think of that? 
Shouldn't prayer be the first thing we do? Shouldn't we run to God first? I mean, he's the one with the resources, right? Uh, He's the one who's in charge, right? And as we'll see, he's the one who loves us more than anyone. We should run to him first and then persist in prayer instead of asking once and giving it a few minutes and then going on to the next thing. All right? Persistence. He wants us to ask. He commands us to ask and to keep asking as an act of dependence on him. So God's subjects ask him persistently. They also ask him expectantly, expectantly. Look with me once more at Matthew. Let's go back to our text. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Once more, follow me. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. What man is there among you who, when his sons ask for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you what is good, give what is good to those who ask him? The reason why God's subjects can ask God expectantly is because they are not just subjects of God, right? They're not just subjects in his kingdom. They're also sons and daughters. They're also sons and daughters of him. He is their father, their king and their father. Jesus promises it will be given to you. You will find it will be opened up to you. And this promise is bound to the very character of God as our father our loving father. The reason why Jesus can make this promise is because Jesus is our loving father. So it's not like this promise, ask and it will be given to you. It's floating out here by itself, right? Ask and it will be given to you. No, it's, it's anchored to the character of God, right? It is anchored into the character of God as our loving father. The reason why this is true is because God is loving father. That's encouraging. It's because of who he is that we can expect this promise to be fulfilled. Now, before we talk about God's fatherly love in more depth, I want to address the meaning of Jesus' promise here. Jesus is not saying that God is your cosmic genie who will give you whatever you ask him. If you think this, then you're going to feel burned and betrayed when your request is not granted. I don't want you to be put in a place where you think that God is not being good to you. Right? If these conditions aren't met, that I'm about to give you these conditions for having these, uh, this, these prayers answered. If we look in the scriptures, we find other conditions that go along with this promise. I don't want you to think, I asked God for something. And he didn't answer me. And so you think he's not good. I asked God for this. He didn't give it to me. God doesn't love me. I don't want you to be tempted that way. So I'm going to give you these conditions. There are four conditions that go along with this promise. They are these conditions that that must be met for you to claim this promise, to, to expect this promise to be fulfilled for you, okay? 
And so we know that Scripture interprets Scripture, and the other Scriptures help us understand what Jesus is meaning here when he says, ask and it will be given unto you. So in studying this text and the rest of the Bible, we find that there are these conditions placed on this promise. Here they are, number one. If you are going to expect that you will receive what you ask for, you must be a child of God. It's kind of already been said this morning, but you must be a child of God to claim this promise. Verse 11 of our text makes it obvious that this, this promise is referring to those who call God Father because they have been adopted into his family by faith in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son. Romans 8.15 tells us, Christians, that God has given believers a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We must be a child of God. Number two, uh, we must be living in obedience to God. 1 John 3.22 says, Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Certainly, John is not saying that we have to be perfect in order to believe that God is going to answer our prayers. That's not what he's saying, right? But your life should be directed toward the Lord, right? It should be directed toward him in love and in submission. Like Dan says, it's, it's not about perfection. It's about what? Direction. It's not about perfection. It's about direction. So you can receive uh, the answers to your prayers if your life is directed toward God. Not perfect, but directed toward God. If you have patterned sin in your life that you have not repented of, this is going to hinder your spiritual life. It's going to, it's going to hinder your prayer life. You may be pleading persistently for God to do something and act. And because he's not granting your request, you're questioning his goodness. But it may be that you're not walking in obedience. Ask the Lord to search your heart and reveal to you the sins that are there, the sins that are keeping you from him, the sins that are blocking your prayers to God. Number three, we must ask with the right motive. Got to be a child of God. Right? Uh, you need to be walking in obedience and you must ask with the right motive. James 4.3 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. God answers our prayers. Why? Why does he answer our prayers? So that we will draw nearer to him. Not so that we draw nearer to other things, right? Not so we'll draw nearer to idols. He's not, he's not going to be used, Right? We're not, we can't go to God and say, God, give me this thing that I really want. It's not that I really want you. You're just a means to the end of something else. No, we have to have the right motive. Not so we'll spend it on our pleasures, but so that we'll honor God with the answer to that prayer. We have to have the right motivation. God wants, he, he, he wants us to draw near to him. And a way he does that is by answering our prayers so that we'll praise him and come back to him. He's not going to answer our prayers so that we turn to other things that don't have the capacity to hold our joy or don't have the worth to receive our worship. Let's be wary of our motives, church. I remember this as a, as a kid in Sunday school. In my home church, our Sunday school teacher was talking about prayer. 
and he told us that we could expect that God would answer our prayers, but he said that this doesn't mean that you can ask for whatever you want. One kid asked if we could ask for a bike. You know, if, can we ask God for a bike? To which the teacher said, well, that depends on your motive. A good motive for asking for a bike would be because your family is struggling to pay some of the bills, so you pray for a bike in order to get a paper route and help contribute. I remembered this. I remembered this uh, and often thought I could ask God for things that I wanted myself if I just tagged a selfless reason on the end of my prayer, right? Think of something real holy, real others-minded, you know, real focused on other people, right? And I'll tag that into my prayer, and I'll fool God into giving me what I really want. Uh, Do you know that that doesn't work? (laughs) But then I got wise and started trying to deceive myself into thinking that the selfless reason was the real reason I was asking, right? I was like telling myself, yeah, this is your, the holy reason is the reason why you're asking. It is. So it's, yes, yes, you do want the Nintendo 64 so you can invite the other kids on your block over to your house more and you can congregate with them and you can have little events and you can, so you can love them and share it more. That's why you want the Nintendo 64. That's why you, you're asking God for it. It doesn't work either. God can see through that. We've got to be wary of our motives. Ask God to give us pure motives. Asking for things so that we can honor him and know him more and find the joy that is in him. Number four, we must ask for things that are not forbidden in Scripture. It seems obvious, but we need to put it on the list. We must ask for things that are not forbidden in Scripture. Ask for things within God's moral will, his revealed will in the Bible. Good things. Ask for good things that will help you enjoy and serve God. Now, this, now that we've given those conditions for the promise, ask and it will be given unto you, we need to ask this question as well. What if you meet all of these conditions? What if you say to yourself, yep, child of God, and I'm walking in obedience as far as I can tell, and um, I think I have the right motive here. I think I want this thing so that I can honor God with it. And uh, I don't see anywhere in Scripture where it's forbidden. And you ask for something in specific. Will God give you exactly what you ask for? Will he give you exactly what you ask for? I struggled with this as I was studying this text. Will God, if I meet those conditions, will he give me everything that I ask for? This is what John Piper writes in his sermon on the same text. It really helped me to understand this. I hope it will bless you. He writes, if we take the passage as a whole, it says that when we ask and seek and knock, when we pray as needy children, looking away from our own resources to our trustworthy heavenly father, he will hear and he will give us good things. Sometimes just what we asked. Sometimes just when we ask it. Sometimes just the way we desire. And other times he gives us something better. Or at a time when he knows is better. Or in a way he knows is better. And of course, this tests our faith. 
Because if we thought that something different were better, we would have asked for it in the first place. But we are not God. We are not infinitely strong or infinitely righteous or infinitely good or infinitely wise or infinitely loving. And therefore, it is a great mercy to us and to the world that we do not get all we ask. He's saying that God, as our heavenly father, doesn't always give us exactly what we ask for, even though those conditions might be met. Why? Because we don't always know what's best for us. We don't always know what's best for us, but God does. Sometimes he, sometimes he does answer that prayer exactly the way we asked for it to be answered. We experienced that this week in the church body. We had these precise prayers. They were, they were answered just the way they were prayed. And we saw that and we rejoiced in the Lord. It was awesome. But there are other times when we ask and we don't receive because God is giving us something better because he knows what we need best. He knows us more than we know ourselves. And and to say that we always know what's good for us at any given time is to say that we have full knowledge. I would have to know what's going to happen to me in the future. Uh, what, what's going on in the hearts of the people that are around me? You know, what's going to happen to my family in the future? I'd have to know people's pasts. I, I would have to have full knowledge to determine what's good for me all the time. And I don't have that full knowledge. I'm not God, but God is God and he knows it. So I ask and he may not give me exactly what I asked for, but he gives me something better. It's never something worse. It's never something worse. It says in verse 11, does it not If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So we see here, Jesus is not giving us a free-for-all with his promise, with the conditions that I mentioned earlier, and then with this discussion about God's goodness, us not knowing all the time what is good, but him knowing what is good at all times for us. With these conditions, Jesus is not trying to deter us from asking. It's not, he's not trying to stop us from asking. No, these, these conditions actually, the ones that we, we just listed, the four, they're meant to draw us near to God, right? Uh, first, in receiving salvation, you're not gonna get your prayers answered if you're not a child of God, right? So draw near to God, right? Uh, second, draw near to God in obedience, Right, obey him, right? If you're not getting your prayers answered, then, then look to see what's in your heart that's sinful. Draw near to God in obedience. Um, what about our motives? Draw near to God in your motives. If you're not receiving the answers to your prayers because your motives are wrong, then draw near to God. Ask him to purify your motives. And fourth, draw near to God in the word. How are we to know what to ask for? How are we to know what to pray for? We draw near to God in the book, the Bible. So he's calling us to come near to him because he is the one where we will find true, lasting, enduring joy. God knows that he is the one that will bring us most joy. He is the one. So he gave us prayer as a conduit for us to relate to him and enjoy him. That's why he gave us prayer. Even though there are conditions to having God answer your prayers, Jesus is obviously emphasizing the point that we should ask of God, expecting him to answer us, 
And why should we expect him to answer? Because he's our loving father. He's our loving father. And using earthly fathers as a comparison, Jesus demonstrates the love of God when he says, what man is going to give his son a stone when he asks for a loaf of bread or a snake when he asks for a fish? Dads, don't you know better than your children what is good for them? Do you give your kids what they want all the time, what they ask for all the time, even when they think it's good for them? No. You know, um, one of my sons had uh, this, this tendency to eat gum off the bottom of tables in restaurants. He'd just go looking for it, rip it off, and we'd find it in his mouth, you know. He, he never really did ask us, but if he did, <laughs> do you think that I would have said yes? Do you think I would have said, son, I know you think this is good for you. Um, and, and you're right. Yeah, go ahead and eat it. No, no. <laughs> of course not, because I have more knowledge. I have, I have more knowledge than my son. Um, I know where that gum has been. Or maybe I don't know where it's been. That's the problem. <laughs> but we don't give our kids everything that they ask for because we know what's better for them. And Yet what, what Jesus is saying here is that he, he's talking to dads. He's, he's saying, you fathers, um, you're evil, and you give good gifts to your children. You give them what they need. You give them what they ask for. Now, obviously, there are, th- there are times when, when kids ask for things that aren't good for them, and we, we don't give them what they ask for, but, but fathers care about their kids. Even us evil fathers, right, with evil hearts, sinful hearts, selfish hearts, and we have the capacity to give good gifts to our children. And so he says, what then can we say about our Father in heaven in whom there is no sin, in whom there's not one smidgen, one iota of sin? How much more can he give good gifts to his children? how much more is he able to give to us what is good? And even though we have often given good things to our kids, at the same time, we must understand that we've missed out on thousands of opportunities to give them good. But God, we should believe that his capacity to give us good gifts is not limited by anything. His capacity to give you what is good is not limited by anything. Not only does he have countless resources with which to give us, but his character as loving father opens wide the door to those resources, right? He is not stingy. God is not stingy. He's not Mr. Scrooge. He's not a miser who determinedly hoards resources that could be used for those who are in need. God is not stingy. No, God is eager, eager to bless, eager to give good gifts to his children because he loves us as he loves Jesus. Because we're in him. By faith, we are in him. We're wrapped in his righteousness and God sees us in his righteousness and loves us as he loves his only begotten son. Turn with me to Romans 8.32. You know this, perhaps.
perhaps. Paul writes, He, that's God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all thanks? You know what this verse means? This verse means that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God has overcome the obstacle that was keeping us from his grace. He has overcome the obstacle that was keeping us from his grace. And sending Jesus to die for sinners, God gave us the greatest gift, Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins and adoption into his family. So now we can be certain, certain that he will not withhold good from us. If he gave the greatest gift, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, then we can be certain that he's not saying, no, no, I'm not giving this. I'm holding this back from you. This is, no, this is all mine. No, he's never going to withhold good from his children because we're in Christ. We can expect good things from him when we ask. So then, why don't we just spill forth prayer? If we know this, if, if we realize this, if we see this in the text, how can we know to spill forth prayer? If you know that you're desperate, that you are needy and helpless, and God has promised to always give you good, then there's no reason why you shouldn't pray without ceasing. Because of God's fatherly love for you, you should pray expecting good in reply. Always. God may not always answer your prayers exactly the way you want, but you can always expect it will be good, never worse, better. You know, we tend to refrain from asking God of things because we think, that's too much. I, I can't ask that. that. That's too much to ask of God. When are we going to stop treating God like he's just another man? When, when, when do we want to stop treating him like he's just another Joe and start treating him like he's God? He's God. There, there's nothing too much for him to give. If it's good for you, if it will draw you nearer to God and help you serve and worship him, then ask for it. Then ask for it. He does not have a limited supply of resources. He does not have a limited supply of grace. He does not have a limited supply of power, a limited supply of wisdom. Infinite in all those areas. Stop treating him like he's just another man who's limited. He's God. Ask, 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 and expect good. Yes, remember that God defines what is good. Yes, remember that. And, and as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, search the scriptures to see what these good things are and find them and ask God for them. But ask, knowing he is God and knowing you are desperate. Our final point. So we, God, um, or Jesus is calling us to ask God persistently, ask God expectantly. And finally, the, the third aspect of obedience that Jesus is calling us to is God's subjects love others sacrificially in view of God's fatherly love. Our text comes to a culmination here in verse 12, 
Turn back there with me. Matthew 7. So often, verse 12 is not put into context with verses 7 through 11. And Jesus writes, listen to this, and everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Verse 12 has been called the golden rule. The golden rule. It is, in the eyes of many, the epitome of morality. And like so many other Bible verses, it's often ripped out of its context and isolated from the impact that God intended for it. There is no power in this verse for us without the previous five verses. There is no power for us in this verse alone without the previous five verses, without the context. There's there's no motivation for treating people the way we want them to treat us unless we plug this verse back into its context where we find that our motivation for loving people in this way comes from the reality that God loves us as gracious Father. See, verse 12 reads, in everything, therefore, treat people the way you want them to treat you, right? Therefore, points back to the previous context. It ties it back in and gives us the motivation for the love that we should be loving other people with. Just being told to love people isn't going to do much for very long. It's not going to do much good for very long. Just to be told, yeah, you need to love people. Okay, you might be doing that for some time. It might have uh, some inkling of power to keep you from being jerks to people on the outside. But as soon as someone rubs you the wrong way, just being told to love them isn't going to help you. Just being told, love that person, is not going to help you. You need some solid truth to anchor that command to, right? Just like the promise that we will receive what we ask for, what's anchored to the character of God, so is the command for us to love other people anchored to the character of God. Love people because God loves you with a fatherly love and always gives you good gifts. You see the power that's in that? It's empty without that context. When someone provokes you to anger, you need to remember that you had provoked God to anger with your very being, with your very nature as you rebelled against his goodwill with your choices. And in the face of your rebellion, you must remember that God sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life, die as a perfect sacrifice in your place, and rise again in victory, so that through him, through faith in him, you would be completely forgiven and adopted as his child. Completely forgiven adopted as his child so that now you can ask of him any good thing and expect always to receive good from him. There's motivating power in that. You see how we can't take scriptures out of their context? Praise the Lord that he doesn't tell us, do these things and figure it out. Figure it out for yourself. I, you know, I don't know how you're going to do this, but just do it. You don't see that happen in the scriptures, do you? Because God is a kind and loving God, and he says, do this, and here's why. Because you've been loved with a fatherly love, a sacrificial love, because God has always given you good things that you love. Isn't that great? How, how, 
how malicious and how unkind would God have to be to tell us to do something and not give us what we need to obey it? He's provided so that we can love. He's given us the motivation. He's given us the foundation and his love for us through Jesus Christ. And let me say this in closing. Let's remember these three points. God calls us to ask of um, Jesus calls us to ask of God persistently and expectantly and to love others sacrificially in view of God's fatherly love for us. But let's ask, remembering that we are needy always. Always needy. Right now, you're needy. And your best moments, you're needy of God's grace. And in your best moments when you're needy of God's grace, God is ready to provide it and to answer your prayers if you'll draw near to him. So it's never like you're needy without the provision for that need. You're needy and God is always generous. Always being good to us, always. Let's talk about these things today. Let's remember these things today. Let's live these things today. Let's pray. Father, thank you. My prayer as we end this sermon is that you would make your children to pray more in light of the knowledge that they are needy, in light of the knowledge that you desire for us to ask, in light of the knowledge that you always give what is good to us, never anything that's bad for us. And Father, may we love people today in light of that knowledge. May that provide a strong motivator. Thank you that you've given us that motivator. And thank you, God, that when you answer our prayers, we can see so clearly that you're generous. But help us to remember when we don't get our prayers answered the way we want them to be answered, that you're giving us something better. May we believe it and worship you in light of it. We pray this all in Christ's name.